My name is Shannon. I'm an alcoholic. I look like a Harley girl, don't I? A little bit. I am uh, really happy to be here, and I just want to thank the speakers, everyone who has spoken before me, particularly the two speakers last night, but also the AA meeting that I got to attend this morning. It was it was just wonderful and so powerful for me. So much honesty um, from Lee and the other people who shared. Just really wonderful. And I want to thank Carla for hosting me. She's just been fabulous. She told me last night when I met her, just whatever you want, anything you need. I can't believe she offered that to an alcoholic. <laughs> I was just amazed. I was waiting for breakfast in bed and being fanned with fig leaves and None of that happened, but we did have a wonderful lunch, and you all are very blessed to have um, just a great committed lady to Alcoholics Anonymous in this community. And I would also like to thank the committee for asking me to speak. This is, this is really a privilege, and I feel so honored that you would have me come out and hear your story. Now, my friend Sonia back in Nashville told me that no one comes to the lunch meeting so that I don't have to worry about my message. There are a lot of people here. She lied to me. Um, and I want to tell you, too, that I know the committee works so hard to put together a speaker lineup and listens to tapes and does so much, and that a lot of you might be disappointed that Don M. is not going to be here tonight. But I have to tell you, I don't know if you came here this weekend to hear Steve L. speak, but I know for sure that I did. When I walked in last night, and saw that someone from my home group was going to be speaking tonight. I was so excited, and uh, thank you for having breakfast with me this morning. And uh, you're a wonderful friend in AA. I really appreciate you. Um, I drove part of the way here, and I got lost. I got to see Spencer and some parts of town. I also got to see the Zippo Gentlemen's Club. Does any <laughs> I thought, oh, yes, I know that place. I bet that's been on a few fourth steps in here. Um, <laughs> men's and women's. I just felt right at home. Uh, I was A few years ago, I had to go to Utah, and a friend of mine who's not in AA said, well, uh, but she knows I'm in AA. She said, well, I just, Utah is very conservative. I just, I don't think they have alcoholics in Utah. <laughs> I didn't think they had alcoholics in Iowa either, but I knew that I would find all of you. So I um I always have to check my watch. The first uh the, the, my first home group in St. Louis, Missouri, when they would have you speak, you got to speak for 20 minutes. And when 20 minutes was up, they were cutting you off. They were getting out the cane. I know I get to talk a little bit longer here, but I look at my watch to take care of myself. And I never Steve and I were talking about this this morning. You never quite sure you know what your story is it's as much of a surprise to you as it is to all of the people listening but if I get like 45 or 50 minutes into this and I'm still in the third grade and still mad at my mom and all that I'm just gonna shut up and sit down so I have to get to a teeny teeny bit of recovery but I am here to share my experience strength and hope and for anyone who uh, this might be your first conference I want to tell you that these are just my opinions I am not a spokesperson for AA this is my experience, strength, and hope. So for what it's worth, I hope that you get a message out of it. And I know today for sure that I'm up here speaking uh, for me, that this is that this is something that uh, apparently God wants me to do. I was very nervous about coming to speak this weekend. I had my first drink when I was 14. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, in the city. And 
I was with my best friend, Rachel, and we snuck into her mom's liquor cabinet, and we got a bottle of tequila and started making margaritas. And I did not get drunk that day, but I did get a mohawk that day. <laughs> and it was quite shocking. My friend Scott Lee says, from now on, your drinking was characterized by countless vain attempts to have a normal hairdo. I was absolutely crazy. Uh, peroxide, scissors, and tequila do not mix. Don't drink and cut, ever. Very bad. I had this patchy, like patchy sides and teased up, and my, you know, my mom was just devastated, but it was before the summer, right before high school, and I was so excited about the high school that I was going to. It was an open walls high school so you could go to class and then go out we could you know go across to the gas station and just have a great time and it wasn't hard for me to find all of the people who drank because they had the same haircuts that I did they were very easy to find and every weekend on Friday night me and about 50 other kids would go to a place in Forest Park in St. Louis it's the site of the first World's Fair and there was a big bridge that went over some railroad tracks in the park, and everyone knew it as the bridge. It's the only bridge in that park. So about 50 kids would gather around, and it was in the fall, and we would build um, a big fire in a trash can and just listen to loud music and drink and drink. Uh, I, the first time I got really drunk, I drank peach schnapps. And to this day, there are still certain peach products that I just cannot eat. I got so sick. But I just... I just loved it, and even though my parents were both recovering alcoholics, my mother having gotten sober in AA when I was five, and my father just uh, quitting drinking altogether, it never occurred to me that I might be an alcoholic. The only thing I knew was that when I drank, I just felt so alive, so smart, so beautiful, so funny. Uh, not that I was any of those things, but that's the way that it felt to me. And I drank like that for a couple of years, primarily on the weekends. And uh, I didn't last long at that open wall school. The walls were just a little too open for me. So after my first year of 5F, my freshman year in high school, I uh, transferred to another school, a performing arts school, with, with people with even weirder haircuts. I just loved it. And when I was a sophomore, about halfway through my sophomore year, this guy who was the scariest guy, in the whole school. He, uh, he was a skinhead, and everyone was terrified of him. He walked up to me at my locker, and he said, you know what? I like you. And so I did what any, you know, discriminating alcoholic woman would do. I made him my boyfriend. And he was, uh, he was really quite a character. He's a skinhead and a tattoo artist. And, I mean, a very good tattoo artist, I might add. He had won awards all over the world and had traveled to Denmark and other places. And, uh, he still gives tattoos to, you know, to, to all the classy people today. But uh, he, would take me, he would take me to a skinhead party. The other thing, he had sort of an interesting vehicle choice. He drove a hearse, a big black hearse. So he'd honk and pick me up in my house, and uh, there's a hearse there to pick me up. My mom was a little nonplussed by that. But uh, we would go to the skinhead parties, and I would get so drunk that he would not bring me into the skinhead parties because he was afraid that I would embarrass him. And, you know, there's that, that 20 questions list that you have, like, you know, do you drink at night? Do you drink alone? Well, I felt like a, a, a 21st question should be added just for me, which is, do you drink more than a neo-Nazi skinhead who drives a hearse? <laughs> if you do, you're probably an alcoholic. <laughs> but he broke up with me 
um, one of many people to break up with me, and I just kept drinking. And a few months later, I was going to a party with, um, at the time, uh, my best friend Bridget, and she had a 66 uh, Thunderbird convertible. It was yellow, just the coolest car. You can see, like, vehicles and motorcycles play a lot into my story. Just kind of realized that. Um, and she picked me up for the party, and when we and this was going to be like the big party. I think uh, kids in high school really relate to this. Like it's the one where everyone's going to be there, all the drugs, all the drinking, all the music. The parents were gone for like the whole weekend, so it started on Friday, and we had until Sunday afternoon to just go for it. So uh, we showed up to the party, and she had a big jug of Gallo wine. And we had little paper cups, and there were about four of us in the car. And she poured some of this gala wine into the uh, in, into a cup, and I took a drink of it. And I had a reaction to the alcohol that I had I had never had before. Um, up until that time, I I could be a little formulaic about the way I drank. I knew how much weed I could smoke, what type of hallucinogens I could take, uh, how much I could drink to achieve what I needed to achieve. But on this particular night. I took one drink, and I started to feel drunk right away. And I was completely surprised by that physical reaction that I had. So, so I drank a little more, <laughs> and then I drank a little more. And uh, my best friend, Bridget, uh, the only thing that I can remember is being at the party for a little while, some people talking, my being moved to a bedroom and the door being shut, and I must have conducted myself in some manner that did not warrant a ride home because Bridget had long left when I woke up at about 8 a.m. and there was a girl standing over me saying, you need to get out of my house now. My parents are coming home. I suppose it was Sunday at that point, so that was two days later. Um, you need to get out of my house. My parents are coming home. And I had no money, no purse. The purse had taken off in the Thunderbird, and she lent me a dollar so that I could ride the bi-state bus home. And I always think about that now in sobriety because from that point on, I really turned to the corner for myself into an alcoholic drinker because I could no longer predict what would happen to me when I drank. Sometimes I would drink and I would be fine. I could have, I mean, I've never, never weighed that much. I've always been about 110 pounds, the same size since high school. And sometimes I could drink uh, a 12 pack. And I could drink tequila and all sorts of things. And then other times, I would have just a little bit. I would black out. I would get into fights. And I just couldn't predict it. And also, um, the more shameful parts of my story really accelerated in that point. That was the point where I started waking up in people's houses, and I did not know where I was. And I would wake up next to guys, and I did not know who they were. At that point, I would have been satisfied to just have known who I was, but... It would have helped to know who he was, too. I mean, if I'm not asking for much here, but I, uh, I just had so much shame. And the problem, and especially, I can only speak as an alcoholic woman, but I had no context for talking about that because I certainly wasn't going to talk to my mother about it. She's just, I just would never do that. Couldn't talk to my sisters because they weren't alcoholic and they didn't really understand my crazy relationship with alcohol anyway. I mean, both of my sisters drank. Sure, kids go to parties, they drink a little bit. That's not weird. Why do you have to drink until you pass out? Why do you have to drink until you're in a fight with someone? They could never understand that. And so I just had to live with that shame and the, the episodes that would happen to me as a result of my drinking. And I had no one to talk to about it. And the only thing 
that I could do to suppress these horrible things that were happening to me is to drink more. That was the only thing I could figure out. Um, once I woke up from a blackout, uh, and I, I guess I was about 16 or 17, I woke up from a blackout and I was driving down Kings Highway Boulevard and my boyfriend at the time was screaming to me, stop, stop, and I slammed on the brakes an instant before I smashed into a car, and he uh, he he took the he took the keys away from me, got me. But I was you know, but I was a very obnoxious, belligerent drunk. My standard line to people was when they would say, "You can't drive, you can't even stand." I would say, "You do not need to be able to stand to drive. You only have to be able to sit, and I can sit just fine." And I was and I was just awful. Um, but I, I woke up from that. That scared me. Then, about a month before I was supposed to graduate from high school, uh, what started out as a little recreational party with my friend Susie, uh, a 12 pack of Milwaukee's Best and some LSD, landed me in Portland, Oregon, about seven days later, in a blackout. It was so scary. And my parents were so baffled. They did not know what to do. And, you know, there's a really sad but ultimately hopeful component to this disease that even though my mother had gotten sober in AA, she could not get me sober. I mean, it really took the rank strangers at the tables of Alcoholics Anonymous because I could not, I could not hear this message from her. It just, it, it would never come from her. And I know it's true for me today that anyone who's really close to me in my life, I can't tell them to go to a meeting. The only thing I can do is go to a meeting. I mean, it's just, it's a very, it's a very sad thing, but she didn't know what to do. She didn't know if she should send me to treatment or, or what. And uh, I convinced my parents, and we're so, if you read in the big book, especially Bill, we're so persuasive. What amazes me is that the people who love us believe us when all of the evidence to the contrary would suggest that they run away from us. Somehow, I managed my parents to send me to college. I said, I, I will do good in college. I'll get my act together. And I convinced them to send me to the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida. <laughs> there are a few chuckles because you must know that for an 18-year-old alcoholic girl, this is not the place to send her. In Miami, the weekends start on Thursday, end on Tuesday, and you have Wednesday to recover so you can get back in the game. That's the way it works down there. And uh, at that time, my next-door neighbor was this, uh, uh, my next-door neighbor in the dormitory where I lived was this brash-talking woman from Lower Manhattan, and her name was Sarah, and just, just a great, and she just loved to drink, and she taught me how to drink tequila, which I loved. I loved tequila. She got, she had a connection to get it mail-ordered to her right to the dormitory, and the UPS truck would pull up and deliver the alcohol to 18-year-olds. And uh, there are no UPS workers in here, are there? Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, I think the statute of limitations has run out on that. But uh, we, we would get drunk, and we'd just go so crazy. And uh, one time when I was drinking, I had uh, her roommate, Sarah's roommate, kind of in a head grip, and I was trying to throw her off the third-story balcony of our dormitory. I am not that strong. It took three people to pull me off of her. I was just in a drunken rage, and to this day, I cannot tell you why I was enraged. <laughs> what I remember now is that she was really pretty nice, but apparently not back then. So I, uh, I just was really crazy, but the thing that was so baffling to me is that I showed up to class, 
every day, and I had a 3.8 grade point average, and I was on a scholarship to go to this school, and that doesn't make sense. You can't be an alcoholic, right? Not if you can, not if you can pull that together, and I felt that, you know, because of my past episodes and the Oregon thing and the Hearst thing and all that stuff, that I had really earned the right to drink at that point because I'd kept the bargain with my parents. I'll turn in the good grades, but just leave me alone and don't ever come down here and visit and just let me drink and just leave me alone. The problem with that was that for me, and I know other people can keep it up better, but my, my weekend episodes started to catch up on me when I was about a year and a half at that school. And Sarah... Uh, my next door neighbor, she, this was our second year there, and she had decided that she hated that school, she hated Miami, she wanted to go back to New York, and she was going to drink herself every day until her parents came and fetched her and took her back to New York. And, and I have to tell you, I sort of admired her conviction. <laughs> she didn't, like, she didn't care about going to classes. She was just out there all the way, just drinking. And I, as a good friend, you know, wanted to accompany her because I didn't feel that she should be drinking alone. So one day, I know, it's quite selfless of me, I know. One day, uh, I had a class to go to and I was sitting with her and she's drinking the Cuervo Gold and she wanted me to drink with her and I knew that uh, I couldn't. I knew that if I had one drink, I wouldn't go to that class. I wouldn't do anything. And that was the most miserable day in all of my drinking because the only thing I wanted to do was drink. That was it. And I couldn't. I just knew that I couldn't. And in my heart, I made the decision that I was never going to let something else come between me and alcohol because I was so restless, so irritable, so discontented. And to not be able to do the one thing that gives you ease and comfort and helps you stand up and face the day, I wasn't going to do it anymore. So that was right near the end of the semester, and I, with my scholarship in 3.8, went on a three-week or month-long bender when I got back to St. Louis, and I never went back to that school. They were expecting me. I had an apartment on South Miami Beach that I was supposed to move into, never made it, never made it, and I felt like such a failure. I just felt like, you know, this was the one thing that I'd held up for myself. If I could just do this, and I couldn't do it. And uh, the good news for me, the bad news at the time, was that I started drinking every day at that point. Uh, beer, wine, tequila, vodka. Um, I would drink scotch, like, with, I mean, like, with the worst things. Like, I don't think I did the scotch and milk thing, but it was really close. It might have been Gatorade. I was really out of it. I don't remember. But I would just drink really nasty things just to be drunk all the time. And I had a boyfriend at that time. I had a couple boyfriends at that time, actually. But boyfriends who I was living with, um, I knew that I had to get away from him because he was actually a worse alcoholic than I was. And in late May of 1992, I told him that I was breaking up with him, that I'm done with this relationship, I'm moving out of the apartment. And he told me, he said, you're not going anywhere. And I said, yes, I am. And I walked down the stairs. And it reminded me when Jim was talking last night about that sensation that he had about being, you know, pulled back by the police. This was the exact same things. I mean, some things in our past, are, like these physical things that happen, are just so present and right there. But I remember when I walked down the stairs to our apartment, he grabbed me by the hair and he just drugged me up step by step by step. And I started swinging at him and he punched me in the stomach and I ran into the bathroom and I didn't know where I was going to go. I was on the second story of the building and I pulled up the bathroom window. My first thought was to jump but I don't know how I'm going to get out of here. And uh, before I could make that choice, 
he kicked in the bathroom door and we went and we went a few more rounds and I ran out of the apartment in a pair of boxer shorts and a t-shirt and ran to a gas station right around the corner there and the police showed up and I had had a little to drink fortunately I wasn't driving and they said mess are you okay and said well my boyfriend and I start you know retelling the whole sad tale to them and they were willing to escort me back to my apartment to get my things and leave but I just had this moment of clarity. You know, when I was, when I was a little girl, I remembered uh, making Mother's Day cards for my mom, and she loved to get fresh, cold glasses of ice water. And so what I would give to her as a little girl, I'd say, I'll give you ice water all for one day, and I'd carry those to her and make, and make pictures and, um, and ride my bike and play with, play with my friends and, and just be a normal little kid. And, like, I saw that little kid when I was standing there, and I don't know who, I had no idea who I was. How I, how did I get so far off the track? I, I couldn't figure it out. And I said, no, I'll go back. I'll go back on my own. So I went back, but I knew something had changed. It's that, that window of opportunity that, that opens up for us and suggests that there might be, there just might be another way to live. Um, fortunately for me, boyfriend number two, who knew that I was trying to get out of this relationship, uh, had just picked up a 30-day chip in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, you did something for me. I know we're not supposed to diagnose other people in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's really not appropriate. But he did me a favor because he said, you know, I think you might be an alcoholic. You may want to go to a meeting. And it had never occurred to me, as I said, even though with all my past, it had never, ever occurred to me that alcohol was my problem. And so I said, okay, I'll go. But I wouldn't do anything like until it was Monday, because you just don't start new things until it's Monday, and and I and I got sober on a Monday. Uh, I am convinced to this day that if I had like shown up to AA on Tuesday, I'd probably been the relapse queen and still out there. I just had it convinced and Monday, you quit on Monday. So on Monday night, I went to a women's meeting at the Lindell Club in St. Louis, and uh, was in the basement, smoky room. And there was an African American woman about 50 who's doing what I'm doing right now. She was standing up here telling her story. And I sat in the back, and I had my arms folded just like you. <laughs> and I just, I looked at her, and I thought, I am not going to get anything out of this. What am I doing here? And she said something that just blew me away. She said, because uh, she talked about crack and other things, and I didn't understand singleness of purpose at that point. I, I, did, I didn't know anything. And she was talking about all sorts of things that I couldn't relate to. But she said, when I drive under bridges, I have a fear that they'll fall on me. And I had that exact same fear. And I had never in my life heard anyone articulate a fear so stupid <laughs> in front of so many people. And I was so blown away by her humility that she would have the courage to say that. And I just, you know, like Bill, what Bill talked about in his story, in his story you know, I, I saw at last that God is concerned with us humans when when we want him enough, at long last, I saw, I felt, and I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. And that night, scales of pride and prejudice fell from mine. I just started to cry, and I went up to her, and I said, I'm an alcoholic, I don't know what to do, I'm a mess. And, and she said, go to meetings, get a sponsor, keep coming back. I mean, really simple directions that even the most shaky alcoholic can do. Keep coming back. I mean, how many of us get invited to do that? <laughs> hardly ever. It's so powerful. 
And so on, and St. Louis is, uh, do you guys have like meeting names here, like the Serenity Group, the Mustard Seed Group? Well, St. Louis is the strangest place because there are no group names in St. Louis. The, the, the meetings are called by their numbers. So like that day I was a group nine. Then on Wednesday I was a group 44. And so funny, when I moved to Nashville and I told people about, you know, my, my home group, the Backroom Group, such an exciting, exotic name, like the Full Moon Group. The alcoholics in St. Louis said, well, who do they think they are? Why do they have a name for their meeting? Isn't a number good enough? So all the meetings were given by numbers. And uh, on Wednesday night, I went to group 44, and I was like, I was just an absolute disaster when I got to AA. I'm, I'm a big basketball fan, and I had this old, ratty Chicago Bulls t-shirt, and sometimes I would wear a bra, sometimes not. Sometimes I took a bath, sometimes not. I mean, really... At certain points in my drinking, sometimes clothes were optional. It just really, really depended. And I was just a wreck. And so I show up at this meeting, and I have my hair is naturally curly, and I would like tie these pencils up in my hair, and I would get the pencil lead really sharp, and I'd have it like tied up in this big mess, and in my hospital pants and Converse shoes. And with the pencils, when I when I would get drunk, I used to pass out, and the pencil leads would like get stuck in my head and poke me in my head. My first sponsor said I needed treatment and a tetanus shot. <laughs> just a disaster and like you know like staple my clothes and you know most women have like uh lipstick makeup perfume i mean i thought office supplies were fashion accessory i had no clue at all and i sat down at this meeting and i carried this big jug of water because i thought i just had a hydration problem that if i could drink enough water that would help me and this beautiful woman uh with perfectly accessorized handbag and shoes came up to me and her name was sarah and she offered to be my sponsor. And it was, it was really incredible because, see, I mean, first of all, I can't believe she did it because when she asked for my phone number, like I ripped out one of these pencils in my hair and I'm writing it down and giving it to her. She took it. She took the pencil, wrote it. Oh, God bless her. And, uh, and she, was, she was just so loving because the thing that she would do for me is that every week on Wednesday night at Group 44 in St. Louis, she had a seat next to her and I was her sponsor. She'd only been a few years sober. I think I might have been her first sponsee. Uh, I would sit next to her, and everyone knew that I sat next to Sarah. And I started to get the love of the fellowship in there. And I mean, I would just come off in the beginning with crazy things. My mother drank when she was pregnant with me. I, con I tried to convince the group that I had fetal alcohol syndrome as an adult. I was just really very, 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 very troubled kid. And... Uh, they just, they just laughed, just like you do now, keep coming back, keep coming back, and I did. Uh, she also told me I had to break up with all of my boyfriends, no more boyfriends, which I did, and I want to say a special thing about my ex-boyfriend, uh, Bob, who got me sober. He stopped going to meetings, and when I was about two years sober, uh, he hung himself in a hotel room in Virginia, and... I owe my sobriety to him. I feel like if he weren't there, you would have a different speaker today. And we have to pay tribute to the people who don't make it and who help us get here. So God bless him now and always. And uh, I did what my sponsor told me, and we did the steps. We did the third step together. I did it down on my knees. We said that beautiful prayer, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And praying that with another human being was so powerful for me. And we got into action right away.
and I started writing my fourth step. But what happened for me was that um, I could write the resentments. I mean, my, my resentment toward my mother, like, that was just fun because I would get so mad that the ink would bleed through to the next page, and I just, and I just had a big old time writing about how you had wronged me. Um, and also my fears, uh, writing about the fears, those were a little easier, but I had a really hard time writing about my sex conduct because I just didn't think that, that good girls behaved the way that I did, and I really didn't know how God was going to forgive me, and I certainly couldn't believe that Sarah, with the matching shoes and handbag, had ever done anything other than maybe like, like pinch a tube of lipstick at the drugstore. <laughs> I didn't really think that she was going to relate to my particular sins. I really didn't. And I was just stalling and stalling at about nine or ten months sober and, you know, my reprieve running out because you're like not the cute pixie newcomer anymore. People are wanting you to move on with this. And in my home group in St. Louis, they don't let you speak until you've done a ninth step. And there's sort of a tradition in that group that you speak on your one-year birthday. So they put a little bit of external pressure on you to, uh, to get that step work done. And I told her that, I said, I just can't do the sex inventory. Can I just do a fourth step without doing that? <laughs> and she said, why don't you come over to my house? It was April, just a few months before my one-year birthday. She said, why don't you come over to my house and just do a little writing, and, uh, and we'll just see what happens. And so I started writing, and I, I had never put down on paper. There were three things that I'd never put down on paper, never admitted to anyone, and I wrote them down. And I just, again, started to cry. And she came in, and she heard me, and she said, will you tell me what these things are now? And we did a fifth step right there on those three things. And I told her, and she turned to me. We were sitting, and she looked at me, and she said, Shannon, you are a classy, sober lady. And I said, did you hear what I just said? <laughs> you must be missing something. No. And she did an amazing thing after that because she told me that I wasn't those things, but I don't have to be those things. I can be if I want, but I don't have to be. And uh, whenever she would see me, she never brought those things up. She always felt like, you know, having those things on my shoulders, whenever I'd look at you, you all knew, you knew the things, and how could I ever, you know, I'd have, you know, furtive eyes, and I couldn't really look at you, and I was so shy, and so she knew all these things, and the next time she saw me, she just gave me a big hug. It's like she'd forgotten them. I don't even think she remembers them. And I know that now from my own experience as a sponsor, that people who bring these horrible things to me, I don't remember what they are. They're so big for the other person. I don't remember them. And that kind of love is so powerful. It's so transforming because it pulls us out of the shame that we live in as alcoholics. And I really started to get well after that point and began to make amends. I made... One amends that uh, went very badly, and I, I wish that for everyone. I think that's just such a good experience to have someone say, I don't care if you're sober now. You were a real jerk when I knew you, and just to just kind of let you have it, because it really puts into perspective why, why we're doing this. And to remember that just because we're sober and we can come to AA meetings and get patted on the back and people love us and think we're swell, not everyone out there does. Not at all. Not even close. Um, and amends are a funny thing, because you never know when when you're going to get to make one. And what our eighth step says is wherever possible. And I have to say, this is my favorite amends that I've ever made. Um, Steve and I go to a meeting in Nashville that has a huge AA meeting at one, they've moved since then, but they have a huge AA meeting 
at one part of the room and a huge Al-Anon meeting. This was about, I guess, two or three years ago. So AA at one end, Al-Anon at the other. And I go into this meeting and right as my AA meeting started, I wanted to go to the bathroom. And I walk in, I try to walk into the bathroom and there's a woman blocking the door and she said, you can't go in here. And I said, what's, what's wrong? And she said, there's a woman's been sick in here. And you know, I have the initial alcoholic reaction. I'm like, oh, there's a drunk in there who's thrown up, whatever. Ah, let me in, let me in. So I just pushed my way in there. Oh my God, a woman had indeed gotten sick in there. It was very, very bad. And another woman I sponsored came rolling up and uh, there was a woman in the stall crying and a smell that would not be ladylike for me to describe to you. It was very, very bad. And in that moment, it's like, and you know, and she's crying and freaking out, and it's like you just like have these moments in your sobriety where you know what you have to do, and it's like, oh God, what am I? I can't go through with it. So she, uh, this woman, it turns out, has uh, irritable bowel syndrome, and she's an Al-Anon, and she was trying to get to the Al-Anon meeting, didn't quite make it, and we weren't sure what to do because we had to figure out a way to get her out of this bathroom. And uh, my sponsor, my sponsor went and got her purse out of the Al-Anon meeting. And this is a huge meeting. We're trying to figure out how to evacuate this woman. And she doesn't want to come out of the bathroom. And I'm, you know, I'm yelling at her. Now remember, she's an Al-Anon, so no one's going to help her. <laughs> and so I've, so I've got her pants, and I'm yelling at her. I'm yelling, have some humility. And she's yelling, let go. And we're like going at it, screaming at each other, trying to get her. So finally, I get this woman's pants out of the stall and I start washing that out in the sink. And the other side uh, was that we couldn't get the bathroom window open that night and I was wearing white. It was really quite a disaster. So I'm cleaning out, I'm cleaning out her pants and it's just a mess. And right at that moment, another woman who I sponsor walks in and she's got six months of sobriety and she hears the woman crying in the stall, smells the aroma in the air, sees me with the pants in the sink and she gets this look on her face like, no good can come of this. I don't want what you have, and I'm willing to go to any length to not get it. Both out of the room. You know, because like the seconds before I got my great sponsor idea that she should do some service work and wash these pants herself, like <laughs> the proper art of sponsor delegation, but it didn't quite work. So uh, <laughs> we got this woman. This woman was crying, and she said, I am, I am so ashamed. This has never happened to me before. But it had happened to me before a lot of times. I woke up from a drunk a lot of times like that. And at least she came by her misfortune, honestly. She'd had bad Mexican that night. Me, I had had like a 12-pack of slits. I mean, so here's this woman, <laughs> just a wreck. And we, you know, we get a towel around her and we're, you know, kind of peering out both doors and, and you know, we, we sneak out to the car, and it's just, it's just a beautiful Al-Anon woman. She sponsors a lot of people in the program. And then when she got in the car, she said, well, you've made amends to Al-Anon. And I said, I have? And she said, yeah, it's about time. We Al-Anons have been cleaning up your shit for years. <laughs> it's a true story, I swear. I'm not making it up. <laughs> And this weekend when I was, I have a file of AA things that I keep and I was looking at, you know, the information for this weekend, I found a thank you note from her and she had given me a little gift certificate. And, you know, thank you for, you know, your help with this and, you know, in a very delicate way. And when I looked at the gift certificate, gift certificate, I remember at the time, like, oh, honey, that money's not nearly enough. That does not nearly cover the expense. That was a mess. But 
Um, after that, I got to make another amends, which is I got to send my boyfriend a check for the mattress I had destroyed. Thirteen years ago when I was drinking, it's funny how those amends work. It felt really good to send that check. It was really embarrassing because it's a little disconcerting to write a letter saying, here's the money for the mattress I destroyed. How do mattresses get destroyed? <laughs> it was a little upsetting, but, uh, but it's, it was a good experience. And um, I want to tell you, too, just a, just a few more things, and I'm going to be quiet, but uh, I was so touched this weekend by the people who talked about the struggles that they have had in sobriety, because sobriety has not always been easy for me. And uh, when I was about 11 years sober, I have always been very, very active in AA, even from the beginning. When I first came here, I really didn't know that you could leave. I just thought, like, you're here and you had to stay. And by the time I figured out that you could relapse, I was like three years sober and kind of enjoyed the deal, so there was no point in going. And I've always been very always active, um, involved in sponsorship service activities, and I love it very, very much. And at about 11 years of sobriety, I, uh, I, I really felt, there's a point in, in Bill's story where he talks about uh, fortune had thrown um, applause my way, I had arrived. Like, that's kind of how I felt in AA, because I was starting to do this kind of thing and speak in, and I, like, sponsored, like, 14 people, and, um, and I felt at the time, you know, when I would go into meetings, that people would talk about me in what I perceived to be sort of a hushed and reverent tone about how fabulous Shannon was, and Shannon got sober when she was 20, and well, if you need a 12-step call or someone to clean out your shitty pants, call Shannon, and you know, like these noble things, and, uh, and I started to get a little full of myself, not, not wittingly, I mean, we come by our mistakes honestly, especially with the disease of ego and alcoholism, it just sort of sneaks up on you, and when I was 11 years sober, um, and I had a fabulous job, a wonderful husband, and things were going really well, um, I lost my job, I got a divorce, I uh, lost my house, and uh, fell in love with someone else, which is all fine, except it didn't happen in that order. <laughs> it, was, it was a little more uh, problematic than that. And it's been very humbling for me, because what has happened is that uh, I, found, like, I, I felt like I was a hypocrite, because as much as I really believe, you know, my whole classy sober lady story, I really didn't feel like a classy sober lady, and I no longer felt like I had a message to deliver in AA. And um, the problem with that is this, that I, I really don't know where else to go if I don't have Alcoholics Anonymous. And my ego tells me that I shouldn't share things with you because of what you'll think of me. And that's, that's fairly convenient. And I think in the outside world that's pretty true, but the problem that I have with it is this, that... You know, when I'm feeling bad or feeling kind of tired, I mean, I can walk over into Minerva, sit down at the bar, and just talk to a ranked stranger and say, you know what, I've had a really hard day today. I think a drink would be good. And they'd say, yeah, I agree. And they don't have the full knowledge of my condition the way that you do. So no matter how humbling it is, I have to tell you where I am. At the risk of people thinking less of me, Maybe even at the risk of people thinking more of me, because what I talked with Steve about this morning is that, you know, neither one of those are true. In a way, we're all frauds. I mean, none of us came here with the, uh, with the best possible story, and what I know from my years of sponsorship is that my shining moments where I am fabulous are not helpful to my sponsees. 
I mean, it is when, you know, I'm, I'm carrying my butt in a bag to a meeting. That's when I'm helpful. Um, and that's hard because that doesn't, that doesn't concord with my ego. My ego wants to be great, but my ego is what will kill me. So, uh, it's very, it's very humbling to speak and say that I make mistakes, but I'm also so glad to, because I don't have to do this perfectly. And in the third step, uh, We've always, we always talk about God as, God as we understand him. So that means God as you understand him. My God can be a Catholic God. I can have the lamppost of a God, whatever. It doesn't matter. But through this experience, I've come to see so fully that it's not only God as we understand him. It's God as we understand him. And the God of our big book, which says that God is really inclusive and all-knowing, never exclusive, that, that this is a broad highway that we're traveling on, that we are not saints. We are not saints. And that most of all, that God is a power greater than ourselves. And that's really the God of Alcoholics Anonymous, the God that I've had to submit to and say, help, because I can't do this anymore. And, uh, and I do want to be sober more than anything. I love my sobriety, and I love that in spite of everything, I haven't found it necessary to pick up a drink since June 8, 1992. I feel like that's the best thing I got going for me. That's at the top of my resume. Um, and also the notion that it says in our big book that clings to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. With it, you can avert lot death and misery for others. It's my only possession. And in my hands, my dark past is nothing but a soliloquy of despair and sadness and loss. But in God's hands, it's the fodder for someone else's spiritual growth. And it's very, very transforming. Uh, when I was two years sober and I found out that my friend Bob had committed suicide, I could not go to the funeral. And he was buried at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis. He was a veteran. And I was, uh, I was so disappointed in myself that I didn't have the courage to do that. And I was sitting in a meeting, group 287, <laughs> the meeting, uh, the noon lunch meeting at the Wendell Club, and I uh, was chairing the meeting, and I talked a little bit about this, and just about the struggle that I was having, and a guy in the meeting uh, who I used to drink with was in the back. This is a big meeting, not quite as big as this, but maybe about 50 or 60 people, and this guy in the meeting stood up, like, after I talked, he said, hi, my name's so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. I want to let you know that I'm really glad over now and but that's nice because i'll tell you something i knew her when she drank and she was a real tramp and he went on and on and on <laughs> and i sat there you know i'm like a deer in headlights i'm chairing this meeting i don't know what to do i just was was just freaking out and uh oh really i oh god and i i left that meeting that was on a wednesday i I mean, I was just devastated. Even though people were quite gracious, I felt like I was actually in the receiving line at a wedding afterwards. People were coming up to me going, oh, don't worry, don't worry. And I, it's so funny because I, I, mean, I think of this day of the immortal words of my husband because this guy is like going on and on and saying stuff. And what my, what my ex-husband Jim used to say is, well, just because I don't remember doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, oh, God, don't let this be true. Don't let this be true. And I, I went home that night, and I called my sponsor, and I said, I am never going back to that meeting. I don't know if I'll ever go back to any meeting. And she pulled out the book. Love the book. Sometimes sponsors are annoying, but I love this book. 
and she read something to me, which is on page 125 in the family afterwards, and it says, few families of Alcoholics Anonymous keep few skeletons in the closet. Everyone knows about the other's alcoholic troubles. This is a condition which, in ordinary life, would produce untold grief. There might be scandalous gossip, laughter at the expense of other people, and a tendency to take advantage of intimate information. Among us, these are rare occurrences. And she said, Jana, you're just one of those rare occurrences. <laughs> and I had a choice. The choice was I could let someone who I have never seen at a meeting since that day keep me away from the only thing that has saved my life. Or I could go back. So on Thursday morning at noon at Group 287, I was back because no one has the right to take me away from Alcoholics Anonymous. Never is that truth more salient now than after everything I've been through. I need you, and I love you. And if I don't have you, I really don't know what I have. Uh, you are my family, and we are, we are bound together in a very special way. And to the extent that, um, to the extent that I stay with you, that's my chance at life. So I want to thank you for letting me speak. It's been a privilege. And if you're new, I hope you stay. But if you're not new and you're thinking about leaving, I really hope you'll stay because we would lose so much and you would lose so much. Thank you. God bless you.